Your radio's tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is The Bike Show. It's Bastille Day, the sun is shining and the Tour de France has entered its second week. It's been a long time since there's been a Tour de France as wide open as this one. There's almost half a dozen people who are in with a good chance of winning the overall general classement and some really exciting stages. I think they've done a fantastic job getting rid of the team time trial, getting rid of the opening day prologue and straight into the racing. And I think this is hopefully going to be the start of a new era for the Tour de France. Despite all that, it's incredibly difficult to find somewhere to go and watch it, at least in London. I don't have a TV, and so I can't watch it on the TV. It's carried in the evening by ITV and uh, by British Eurosport on subscription. And I've ended up searching around uh, the bars and cafes of of London. Apparently there's a, a bar down in Stockwell, frequented by Portuguese cycling fans, that screens it. I tend to go for Bar Italia with the giant plasma screen in the back there. But if you know a place in London where you're watching the Tour de France, let us know because um, we need to share this information. Where are the people out there enjoying this fantastic sporting spectacle, this festival of Frenchness, this celebration of cycling? We want to watch it together and have some fun. So let us know. Send an email, bikeshow at gmail.com and let us know where you're watching the Tour de France. And it's a pretty fantastic time to be watching the Tour de France if you're British because Mark Cavendish fresh from his stage wins in the Giro d'Italia, has been setting the sprint finishes of the Tour de France alight with his incredible burst of speed in the last 300 metres. There is clearly nobody in cycling who is faster than him over those last 500 metres, and he's only 22 years old. How about that? Finally, a British champion who actually delivers what the hype suggests he's capable of delivering. I like Mark Cavendish. He's like an anti-Tim Henman. He's confident, he's not unpleasant, but he's confident and he'll let you know that he knows that he's pretty good and he'll deliver the stuff when it comes to it. So let's get behind Mark Cavendish and hope that he sticks through the mountain stages and picks up a couple of stage wins in the last week of the tour to take him 
on to Beijing, where I'm sure he's going to rock the velodrome over there at the Olympics. And I don't think I could pass up the chance to relive a couple of very special moments for British cycling. Don't look over your shoulder because there's still a chance here for the champion of France, a desperate effort after leading for almost all of the 232 kilometres. Mark Cavendish is bursting out of the practice, had to make a run very early here. He's challenged by the sprinters. Look at the speed of Mark Cavendish here. As we get the shot, he's wiped out the champion. Mark Cavendish, the youngest British rider ever to get a stage win in the Tour de France. Cavendish is sixth place at the moment, but this man does pack an incredible finish. Cavendish needs to break now as Stegmans gets the perfect lead out. Freire is looking hot. Robbie Hunter coming in the red. Stegmans goes now. Here comes Mark Cavendish. He swings to the left. He kicks. Mark Cavendish so quick over this last distance as Cavendish races towards the line. He gets it. That is unbelievable. He has got his second win of the Tour de France to equal the two he got in the Giro de Italian. That was Mark Cavendish, the new star of British cycling. And if you do want to follow the Tour de France, I think I ought to have mentioned uh, the excellent podcasts that are being produced by ITV every day. They're pretty good, pretty informative, pretty funny. They uh, produce them quite quickly after the end of the day. And that's well worth um, a listen because obviously we can't cover things from the bike show in the same way that they can cover them with their great production teams but, you know, maybe one day the bike show will be able to cover the tour in its entirety. I look forward to doing that very much. One thing that I highly recommend is if you can get yourself a copy of L'Equipe newspaper, the Sporting Daily, which is in fact the successor to the newspaper Loto, which was the newspaper that started the Tour de France way back more than 100 years ago. Anyway, L'Equipe um, in the UK costs a mere £1.40, which I guess is quite a lot, but... The writing about cycling in L'Equipe is far better than anything you'll find, even in The Guardian, which I think tries to do some good writing. And I can see Paul Kimmage has got a a column in The Times or The Sunday Times. But basically, if you can read a bit of French, get your dictionary out, get your copy of L'Equipe, sit in a corner cafe drinking an espresso and uh, polish up your French while, while reading some of the best sporting writing that there is, really. And another publication that doesn't quite have the illustrious history of L'Equipe is, of course, Rouleur, published quarterly by Rafa, the clothing company. And I have an article about Paris-Roubaix 
in the current issue and we're going to be giving away a few copies of that later in the show so stay tuned for a contest to win a handful of copies of the latest edition of Rouleur. Uh, do not fear if the Tour de France is not your thing because it, we're not going to be talking about that all of the show this week. In fact, we're going to be turning to street design, which is um, about as far away from the Tour de France as you could possibly get. Um, a recent briefing paper was issued by CABE, um, otherwise known as the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, which is here in the UK the statutory body which provides government with advice on how to design buildings and uh, public spaces. The briefing is called Civilised Streets and um, it reflects an important shift in thinking in recent years about urban design which has been codified recently by the government's new Manual for Streets which sets out basically a completely different way of thinking about how to design for um, all different kinds of road users in an urban environment. Louise Duggan is streets advisor at the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment and I met up with her to discuss the briefing paper in some more detail down in Waterloo. I began by asking what was this new approach to urban street design? Urban streets are more than roads so they're not just about getting from A to B, they're about the kind of life that they support, they're about the buildings, the shops, the businesses, the kind of play opportunities, the opportunities to dwell. So that's a real revolution in thinking that streets are not just through routes anymore. How did people used to think about what they needed to get out of their streets and thoroughfares? Well, I think there was a real shift in the kind of 50s and 60s. I mean, Buchanan did his report, um, Traffic in Towns, which was um, very much about segregating pedestrians and cyclists and um, the motor traffic or the motor vehicle. And for the last 40 years, we've really been designing to that kind of paradigm, that framework. And what was the segregation meant to achieve? Well, it was meant to achieve safety, basically. It was meant to, there was a chap in the 1940s Ministry of Transport and Defence called H. Alker Tripp who said, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a, a wave of death and sort of destruction on our shores and we need to segregate, segregate, segregate. We need to redirect the pedestrian willy-nilly to keep them safe, you know. So it was all about separating everybody out so there was a sense of safety there. But was it also about facilitating higher speeds for motor vehicles? You know, there was a real sense that there was this huge wave of motor vehicles coming in and that they needed to design, redesign cities. Cities needed to be rewired in order to accommodate this um, so that cities would survive. But it was about flows, it was about speed and it was about kind of uninterrupted routes that meant that the driver wouldn't get anything that would surprise them and therefore it would be safe. So we're talking in concrete terms about physical barriers like railings that would separate the pavement from the road, about traffic lights, about roundabouts, what other kinds of things that people can really relate to are characteristic of this period of thinking? Well, one thing that Londoners might recognise is um, Centrepoint. And I mean, Centrepoint was the centre of a plan where they were going to basically um, put an elevated highway basically right through that part of London. They were going to kind of recombobulate the streets and spaces so that this kind of fast-flowing traffic, so that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know, like you say, guard railing everywhere. Um, in some housing estates, you can see it in terms of the separate pedestrian paths, completely separate from um, the kind of street, if you like. And that has counter sort of intuitive implications because it's created all sorts of safety, personal safety risks, because nobody's seeing you walk in that space. 
you're there alone, it feels unsafe, and actually there's so many routes, um, lots of rat running, and there's lots of sort of criminal behaviour that can, can happen there. So when did it dawn on people that this had been a bit of a misjudgment, really? I would say about five or ten years ago, things really started to gain momentum. Um, in the last two or three years, it's gotten really exciting. And has this been simply a matter of importing some planning policy from Holland or Germany? In Holland and Germany, there have been people like Hans Mondermann doing the kind of the kind of shared space principles that you know you, you you negotiate the space together as users. Everybody has equal rights to the space, but everyone has equal responsibilities in that space. So. Just because you're in a car doesn't mean you can run over an old lady who's pushing a kind of a shopping trolley. Um, but equally, she can't just walk out kind of with no regard for the fact that there's traffic there. You know, it's a shift in the paradigm. Well, enough of theory and paradigms. Yeah. Let's get on our bikes and take a look at the cut. Well, here we are in the middle of the cut, just outside the Young Vic Theatre. And I don't know, Louise, what your knowledge of the history of the cut is, but as a local resident, I can tell you that a little more than a hundred years ago, this was the biggest and longest market street in London. Wow. Um, one side of the of, of the uh, of the street was absolutely filled with market stalls selling everything you could imagine, and it stretched all the way, including where we've just come from on Lower Marsh, right down to the uh, to the new Will Allsop building. And it was actually a bustling market street. Now it's something rather different. For a long time, it's been a classic cut through, a bit down at heel and now after a, a lot of digging and resurfacing work and extending of the pavements we have something that I think the planners would like to claim was a civilised street to coin the phrase of your briefing paper. In what ways would you think this is a civilised street? What we've seen here is a kind of a, a sort of reclaiming of some of this space and a rebalancing of this space, a recognition of the fact that it's not just a cut through, um, it's actually a place where there's theatres, restaurants, shops there's also kind of, you know, it's not just kind of shishi shops, it's kind of, you know there's the, the kind of tool shop there's bike shops, it's a kind of a really nice neighbourhood high street, it's that thing that they do in the States quite well actually, Main Street Main Street, you know, and, and we need to rediscover that I think and, and I think this is, you know um, a place where that's happening So besides introducing a few dozen new trees which are not exactly in bloom, but they've got some leaves on them now. They spent the winter in hibernation. We've got the pavement extended up to about four metres into what used to be the road. And at the junction points, we've got kind of raised areas that um, means the, the cars have to kind of mount a ramp, but also there's no curb edge so to speak really or maybe it's just an inch or so between the, the pavement or less than an inch between the pavement and, and the road there's talk in your briefing paper about shared space and shared surfaces what, what do you mean by shared surface? Well I think shared, shared space is a term that was coined about six or seven years ago to describe this kind of quiet revolution that we're talking about this morning and basically it was about saying Hang on, you know, the, the, the roadway in this, in this environment is part of the same environment. The path is part of the same environment. It's all one space, actually. You know, if you want to leave the Young Vic and go for some tapas, it's only professionals that see them as very separate things. Actually, people using the space use it as one. And it's also this issue about kind of bikes, cars, 
you know, people just sharing the same space. So the idea is that we stop segregating and kind of telling people you're safe once you do this and you're unsafe if you do that, which is never the full story. So what's interesting here right outside the Old Vic is one of the things that the design team did was they decided that actually they were going to use different paving outside the kind of key spaces. And the idea with using this natural paving here and this raised table that we can hear the taxis bumping up on is that this becomes a little bit more like a square or a plaza. So there's, I think, about three or four of these along the street. Yeah, because there's one in the middle, just outside Evan Cycles, actually, which has got the Belisha beacons. So that's the zebra crossing, yeah. which, you know, covered in paint all over the place. And there's a clear right-of-way for pedestrians who are supposed to wait calmly at the side of the road and let somebody um, allow them to cross. But at this point here, there's the same hard surface and the hard featuring but the paint and the zebra crossing is not there is this an invitation to to cross i think uh, it's an invitation to behave like humans do you know because that's what we've always done it's just that somehow we've thought by putting in these kind of um barriers and crossings and lines and signs that we would somehow respond you know people are not going to obey nonsensical rules people don't you know pedestrians and cyclists especially are very energy sensitive they're not going to walk 100 metres out of their way, misdirected by bollards and railings just because they're promised it's going to be safe down the road. They're going to take you know, responsibility for themselves and cross where it's safe. One of the interesting concepts in the Civilised Streets briefing paper is this idea of introducing uncertainty and with it, I guess, risk as a way of actually making things safer. It sounds a little bit counterintuitive. Can you talk me through how uncertainty can make a road safer? Yes. Kensington High Street, for example, redesign of a street along some of these principles, taking out unnecessary lines and signs that had just become the habit. We just put them in because there was a bit of budget left. We just put them in because we thought this will deliver safety. They did an audit. They took out a lot of the, um, I think it was 70-something metres of um, pedestrian barriers. Three years later, after the stats came in, they had much better record um, in safety terms. And that was something that, you know, the kind of um, engineering community hadn't expected and didn't really necessarily believe was going to happen, but it did. And what you see there is exactly what you see here. People actually, instead of just having kind of tunnel vision because they own the road, people are looking around them, people are making eye contact, people are standing at the edge of the curb announcing their intention to cross looking for a safe point and then crossing. People are kind of engaging with one another and I think that has to be a good thing in these great big massive cities that we're all trying to live in. Well, we've left the cut behind us and are approaching via the back street route on the London Cycle Network, in fact. Always difficult to d discern where the London Cycle Network wants you to go. But we've come to the roundabout on the south side of Waterloo Bridge uh, where the IMAX theatre is and you can hear the trains rattling over overhead and taxis and buses and people going to work it's just coming up to nine o'clock so it's prime rush hour time and we're going to investigate this uh, thoroughfare um, let's take the uh, the green cycle lane down the side here
Now, Louise, from all of what you've been talking, which has sounded extremely sensible about reducing the amount of uh, clutter and rules and segregation and directions and logic from street design, what we see now here, the IMAX roundabout on the south side of Waterloo Bridge, is something that used to be fairly open and negotiated and now it's just full of rules and regulations and places where you're supposed to be and I have to say I'm constantly confused about where I'm supposed to go it's very non-intuitive particularly to a cyclist what's your view as a professional on this this setup here you know London's a big city it needs places that can be the kind of muscular routes that um can really get sort of numbers through and I mean it's a big bus hub it's a big interchange with Waterloo but I agree with you it's just kind of it's it's kind of like a Jackson Pollock there's just kind of like somebody's thrown a lot of different colored paint at this street and I've kind of made it into something that's just a really confusing space well I was riding there with Louise Duggan who is the streets advisor for CABE the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment and I would definitely recommend taking a look at this briefing paper it's really quite interesting whether or not it will get implemented whether or not local authorities will take account of what it says remains to be seen but the more people who know about these kinds of approaches who get involved in lobbying their council members for decent street design I think that can only be a good thing. Now I mentioned at the start of the show that we'll be giving away a few copies of the current issue of Rouleur magazine which uh, it normally retails for nine whole earth pounds which is Quite a lot for a magazine, but actually Rouleau is something a bit special. It's printed on beautiful paper, it's got some lovely photographs, and really each issue is not the sort of thing that you just throw away when you've read it. It's something that you'd keep as a reference for the future. Anyway, there's a particular reason to want to get your hands on a copy this month, because the cover story is written by me, and it's about um, Paris-Roubaix, about the history of Paris-Roubaix, about my own reflections on what Paris Roubaix means. Anyway, well, I hope you enjoy that article, but there are a lot of other articles that are probably far better than mine also in this issue of Rouleur. And to win one of a handful that we have to give away, you have to answer the following question. And the question is this What is Mark Cavendish's rider number in the Tour de France this year? What is the number that Mark Cavendish wears on? his jersey. Send that by email to bikeshow at gmail.com. Well, we'll we'll leave it for a couple of days and uh, so all the podcast listeners have a chance to uh, send in their answers and we'll pick out at random um, a handful of lucky recipients and we'll send those copies off to you in the post. Well, we're almost out of time on the show this week. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you're 
enjoying the current season of The Bike Show. Next week, Guy Andrews, editor of Ruler, will be coming in to talk about the tour and where we've got to after a further week's racing. But now it's really time to start thinking about the Dunwich Dynamo, which of course is just six days away this year, 19th of July, overnight to the 20th of July, leaving from London Fields, the pub on the park at nine o'clock. Don't leave before nine o'clock. I've heard about these people leaving at six in the evening just because they want to ride a little bit more in the daytime. That is not the spirit of the Dunwich Dynamo people. It's supposed to be a night ride, not an evening ride. So stick around until nine o'clock. Don't think you can just get ahead of everybody to scoff all the food at the midway stop. Anyway, I shall be riding, barring any um, accidents or unexpected events between now and then. And I hope to see you there. Come and say hello. Um, It's a fantastic ride if you've not done it before. It's 120 very, very easy miles through the night under the full moon to the coast for a swim at the beach at Dunwich and hundreds and hundreds of people doing it I would expect if the weather's good this year there'll be eight or nine hundred people if you've ever ridden in a group of eight or nine hundred through the night well I don't think you could have done unless you've been on the Dunwich Dynamo before and then you'll know all about it so do come along it's the pub on the park at nine o'clock doesn't cost anything to enter 23 pounds if you want to come back on the coach Barry Mason will be selling tickets to the coach trip back uh, cash only I think at this point or you can just uh, get on the train to come back or ride the 30 miles or so more to Ipswich which is probably what I'll be doing uh, because there's a lot more trains from Ipswich and it's a bit faster or if you're really hard you could ride all the way back and I'm sure there'll be a few people doing that so see you there 19th of July the Dunwich Dynamo until then thanks for listening This is Resonance 104.4 FM. This has been The Bike Show. I am still Jack Thurston. And until next week, enjoy Bastille Day. Enjoy Le Tour de France. Vive Le Tour et chapeau.